This is Euroscopic, a podcast brief about what happened this week, how we got here, and where we're going. I'm William Bluecroft. And this is Martin Guck. You can find this podcast and other essays at our Substack, euroscopic.substack.com. And of course, you can subscribe wherever your ears go for podcasts. Like, comment, share, you know the drill. If you like it, let us know and a friend or two of yours as well. This episode was recorded on Thursday, the 31st of August, 2023. You seem, seem to be in perfectly good shape. Oh, good. I'm glad I look that way. I feel a bit tired. I've, um, I seem to have caught something that is going around, which is a thing that like, sometimes you feel fine and sometimes you feel sick and it just kind of oscillates back and forth. So it's That's strange and it sounds very unpleasant. Yeah, it's a very strange thing. So, uh, I'm just kind of staying home and, and, uh, taking it easy and hopefully I can be as sharp witted and delightful for our audiences, uh, as they've come to expect. So something very curious happened to me last week. I went to a colleague's farewell um, in, a, in a bar here in the center of Berlin and I uh, attempted to order uh, a beer. I attempted to order it and the guy looked at me completely puzzled and said, uh, no, no, in English, please. And this is happening throughout sort of the center, the center of Berlin, uh, a bit less sort of towards the peripheries which is creating a strange kind of inverted ghetto situation in which Germans are kind of locked out of certain commerces and are locked out of certain sort of activity unless they can actually interact in the in the English as a lingua franca. Well, of course, I mean, and actually I, I write a lot about this on my own over on my, you know, Schland substack about the sort of the dual track nature of what it means to be foreign in Germany if you're a upwardly mobile a uh, professional class person belonging to the Anglo-American uh, side of things, regardless if you're a native English speaker or not, but at least if you participate in those or swim in those waters, uh, you're cut a lot more slack. You'll be considered an expat and, and therefore get away with all kinds of things that lower class, working class immigrants and descendants of those immigrants could never get away with. The kinds of things that those people would be considered a parallel Gesellschaft, a parallel society, kind of ghettoizing themselves and seen as a threat to mainstream society, the other people, the English speaking side, the Anglo side or the Anglicized side uh, is sort of uh, bowed down to as something to strive for, to aspire to. The argument you make is exactly the argument Jens Spahn made in 2017 and it was, was roundly criticized for it. Jens Spahn internationally probably better known for being the health minister during the pandemic, but before that, just a lawmaker in Angela Merkel's uh, conservative party. Uh, he is a conservative and he made a point, rightly so, that there shouldn't be places in Berlin where it's it's fine to speak English and be able to speak English, but to only speak English is actually, in, contrary to a sign of cosmopolitanism, is actually just provinciality in a different form. Anyway, yeah. what are the what are the stories for this week? It's not just the, the increased traffic on the streets and more kids on the streets going, you know, now that school's back in Berlin, that have shown me that summer is officially over. We are now in the full fall phase, but also that the the news agenda is just suddenly busier and more crowded. So we have a lot of stuff uh, to talk about. There is more fallout on the Tunisia deal, uh, something that you and I talked about, I think, way back in our very first episode. And the big thing we want to talk about is this week, uh, a big milestone in the Digital Services Act, which 
potentially has some major ramifications for the internet, which is, as we know, primarily an American industry, uh, given that all the major internet companies are American. Before we get to those really big ones, let me turn it back over to Martin uh, for some other stories this week that you've been seeing. So this week, uh, the PP, the conservatives that do not have the numbers to foreign government in Spain, uh, and they know that, they turn to uh, Sanchez, uh, the socialist in power, and they ask him if he would allo allow them to rule for two years, which would be essentially half a term. Uh, this is Feijot, one of the strangest requests um, that I have seen in European politics in a very long while, reminiscent a little bit of the Israeli deal that was struck between... Uh, I was just going to say that. It seems that the rebuke for the conservatives in Spain was actually pretty quickly. I mean, newspapers across the country are saying this is this is really just nonsense. Uh, and clearly that is also, there has been pretty much a reaction of the socialists. They are still trying to court you know, the, the the independentist votes from around the country. And one of the things that they have actually offered was to the recognition of um, of regional languages uh, as official parts of the, of the language charter of Spain. If I understood correctly, that would not only be at the Spanish level, that would be at the European level, because they mm -hmm. would become official European languages, which would add all kinds of layers of bureaucracy and translation by adding new languages at the in Brussels. Am I correct? Very, very much so. But uh, basically, you would potentially go into into the parliament, give your speech in Basque, uh, and now you would have to have a very large number of translators that can translate yeah. not only between Basque and English or Basque and French, uh, but also Basque and Hungarian, Basque and Polish, uh, so on and so forth. Uh, one of the smaller stories of the week was uh, the UK's oopsie, technical oopsie. I believe I believe the official word was glitch uh, in their air traffic control system. Flights in and out of the UK uh, for a couple of days actually were or heavily delayed, if not grounded, due to a, a simply an error in their system, which is um, for me pretty frightening. Just how thin the line is between you know functional society and complete. You know, uh, you know, post-apocalyptic uh, shut shutdown of social processes. You know, like one yeah. little glitch in a system, and that's even that's even assuming everybody's best interests. Assuming there aren't bad actors out there intentionally looking to take down systems. Uh, just how you know vulnerable, uh, how thin the ice is on which we on which our modern societies walk. Um, a serious migrant. Is migrant crisis of the 2015 type could quite literally, I mean, could quite literally uh, push things like the IFD, could actually under, you know, underpin the further, the further move of Orban and people like that. You could find yourself in 2024 with an Orban commission, uh, which is staffed by people that belong to, say, Vox from Spain, Fratelli d'Italia in Italy, PIS in Poland, uh, and a couple of maybe CDU, like sort of Christian Democrats from Germany that have made a deal with the devil, and a couple of PP people in Spain that have made a deal with the devil as well, and had been sort of given different positions inside the commission. So it is really not a small thing when you look at the way that the 2015 crisis has actually really moved, pushed the dial to the right. Right. I mean, it really everybody understands, I think, that the situation is extremely critical. 
which brings us kind of the other side of this coin, which is a billion euros is a lot of money for anybody. It's especially a lot of money for a country like Tunisia, essentially a payoff telling Tunisia, here's a bunch of money, uh, keep the migrants out of, out of fortress Europe. And a uh, major European political figure, Max Weber, who is the head of the European People's Party, this uh, grouping of center-right parties around Europe in the European Parliament, he went to Tunisia, had kind of a state visit there, met with leaders there. Uh, Tunisia, which, of course, is increasingly being criticized for backtracking on democracy, for cracking down on free speech, for, uh, you know, increasing police uh, police state-like tactics against its own people and certainly against foreigners. And Max Weber had this strange uh, kind of two-sided uh, uh, lesson to bring to Tunisia. One, uh, make this work. You know, we're giving you a lot of money and we want to see results. But also, hey, you know, you know, what else are we supposed to do? We can't dictate to other countries how they run their run their internal affairs. This is realpolitik. Not all places are nice. And uh, yeah, it might not be nice, but this is the way the world works. It actually quite reminded me of um, Olaf Scholz, the chancellor of Germany, when uh, there was the question of whether Germany would boycott the, the Olympics in China. And he essentially had the same answer, saying, uh, look, the world is not a nice place. We have to deal with people how they are, not the way we want them to be. I think that what is disingenuous about the, the the Weber position is essentially that, you know, what you're doing is not quite simply engaging uh, with people that might not be particularly nice. Uh, you're, you're, you're quite literally like supporting them and underwriting their operation by putting one billion euros in and essentially with what very likely will be very little control and a very, very little, very little oversight. I think we can slightly shift gears to two other stories of sort of interests versus values at the European level. One of those is this report from Global Witness uh, that uh, Russian oil, not sorry, not oil, but Russian LNG gas imports uh, are not only down, not only not down, they're actually up uh, by the very countries that are, you know, said they are swearing, swearing them off. Yes, by 40%, actually, no small number, right? Right. Yes, 40% in comparison to the year just prior to Russia's full-scale invasion of yeah. Ukraine. You are basically putting money into the pockets of somebody that is using that money to, you know, shoot on Ukrainian civilians. Um, and and you're doing this while claiming that you're not doing this and that you have stopped doing this. Um, and, that, and that you stand for the people getting shot at. Uh, obviously, I mean, I think that the real political calculation here is somewhat similar to the previous question, the one with immigration, which is you cannot really get away from Russia in terms of energy. You cannot really get away from Tunisia in terms of immigration or Turkey in terms of immigration without benefiting Turkey, Russia or Tunisia. So at the same, you know, so at the same time we have, you know, Russian LNG gas flowing in, economic crisis or potential crisis in the European Union, especially in big places like Germany, which in response, Germany as well as France are looking to subsidize their big industry that are huge energy consumers. Sure. And I want to make clear there's a difference between gas and oil and heat and electricity. I want to make that clear, obviously, so it's not completely apples to apples. But in any case, looking to subsidize 
these legacy industries to keep them in their in their countries, Germany and France, respectively. France, of course, wants to subsidize nuclear power because it's totally pro-nuclear. Germany is religiously against, almost like a cult, against nuclear power. Um, both sides trading accusations against the other for trying to manipulate the market. And of course, both of them easily, if they go through with any kind of these subsidies, could be violating EU, if not WTO, uh, subsidy rules. Uh, where do you think that the where do you think that the sub uh, the subvention uh, the subvention is going? Well, if if passes prologue, I mean, normally what happens at the European level is some kind of some kind of meek compromise is worked out after many many hours and many many rounds in a back room somewhere in Brussels, where everyone kind of walks away with a little bit of what they want. Germany will in some way be allowed to subsidize uh, its its industries, you know, call it some kind of economic crisis or emergency fund stopgap funding measure. Somehow there'll be a loophole made and I'm sure there'll be some kind of allowance made for France as well. I mean, it's kind of ridiculous that we're talking about these additional subsidies when German industry and consumers, you know, individual residents are already massively subsidized in their heating bills since last winter with a gas uh, uh, with a with a heating and electricity. Uh, break, so to speak, a price break, uh, uh, which is sort of like a, a, a cap. Uh, so to the tune of 200 billion euros, the kind of money that Germany can spend slash borrow that other countries simply cannot because just their economies and their debt borrowing uh, kind of allowances won't allow for it. The financial markets won't allow for it in the way that they'll allow Germany to be able to borrow. Does this then turn industries into so-called zombie economies where companies and, and sectors that should go the way of the dodo, no offense to the dodo, uh, linger on uh, when mm -hmm. and getting in the way of innovation, of new technologies, of new, uh, new industries, new sectors, which funny enough is something that in Germany, the Free Democrats, the FDP, the Liberal Party, loves to champion, loves to talk about innovation, startups, new technologies, new innovation, but they're the party most in favor of tax breaks for major companies. Seven billion euros was just passed in tax breaks in Germany. So it's a very interesting push and pull situation. Also, it's politics, not exactly something we could say that hypocrisy is any, any stranger to. The Digital Services Act, which has been a long time coming, but this week uh, sees a major milestone uh, in terms of it coming into force and companies having to comply with it. And Martin, I think you've especially been reading into some of the details, so maybe you can give us the breakdown of what exactly the DSA is all about. I mean, the DSA is uh, a very strange animal that I've been following for at least a year and a half or so. Uh, the Digital Service Act is essentially uh, a way to bring rules directly to bear on the platforms. The platforms now are essentially demanded uh, to implement ways uh, to prevent false post postings, the distribution and sales of illegal goods, for instance, uh, false content, abusive content, and so on and so forth. And they also are required to define ways in which users can report these things. Now, uh, the possible penalty now is 6% of the daily global income of a company. The attempt is to find a way um, to actually make all companies that have more than essentially 45 million monthly users in the EU um, essentially take up the rules and enforce them. This is where the EU shines, right? This, you know, it doesn't have a military. It can't impose its will militarily. It can't impose its will even financially. 
uh, but it can impose its will in a regulatory way because it's such a big block, 450 million people altogether, a GDP, it's lagging behind where it should be in comparison to the US, but a massive GDP when taken all together. So it can pass regulations that although technically only apply to the EU, because we live in a globalized interconnected society, it, co it would cost companies a lot of money to make one set of uh, services and goods for the European Union and another for the rest of the world. So the idea being, well, we're already we already have to make things a certain way for the EU. We'll just make them the same way for all around the world, whether that's auto car, you know, fuel efficiency for cars, the kinds of plugs that we have for our phones to charge them. And now this kind of data protection, security uh, and really competition. There is, of course, an economic aspect to this as well, because America just blows the European Union out of the water when it comes to digital innovation, Internet companies, et cetera. This is this is also a protectionist measure to to help European companies compete and level the playing field with these massive American firms that can just steamroll any potential competition within the European Union. The overwhelming presence of American companies has also meant essentially the, you know, you put it in terms of steamrolling, but has meant the freezing of has meant the freezing of European development because many of these companies have had really very strong predatory approaches. I still do expect uh, essentially European innovation development to be the only serious solution to actually the kind of things that you see coming out of the US or coming out of China or coming out of Russia and the Middle East in some cases. Of course, the, the, the counter argument here is the whole reason that the internet exists, the reason these companies have become so powerful, the reason we have Google search at all, the reason we have Facebook at all is exactly because there aren't the data protection regulations. The internet is built and it is free, so to speak, at least from a financial point of view, is free um, because in exchange, we take your data and we profit off of your data and we do all kinds of unseemly things for it. And that is the deal that consumers make with these internet platforms. And none of this would be possible if the kinds of EU regulations existed in America in the first place. There never would be a Google, there never would be a Facebook. Now we can have an economic and a moral argument about whether that's a good thing, um, contrary to my own vested interests in the internet, given my my job and given this very podcast, uh, I might come down on the side that we'd all be a lot better off without all of it. Um, but nonetheless, it'd be a very different world if from the onset, you know, 30, 40 years ago, when all these ideas started kicking into gear, when the internet of today was really getting going, uh, if these rules were out there to begin with. The point here is that we have law and we have terms of services. And I think this is an attempt by the European Union to make the law stand above the terms of services. So in a way, this really is a power struggle of different bodies of regulations and norms. It's not merely that when you have the violation of, let's say, privacy rules, or when you have the violation of political rights, Facebook being used and the money that is being put by uh, you know, European advertisers in Facebook is being used indirectly to support, let's say, massive human rights violations or the persecution of minorities in India. The law in Europe is European law and the law that guides or that rules over our actions is European law and it cannot be the terms of services this this uh, Digital Services Act is just one part, one big part of a, a kind of a long running ecosystem of various rules, regulations, massive bodies of law 
uh, that the EU has been trying to do for years. We have the General Data Protection Regulation, GDPR, which is almost a, a curse word for some people, which basically came into effect in 2018 and made everybody from the biggest fish to the tiniest tadpoles have to suddenly comply with all kinds of data protection at risk of some very serious fines. Uh, you also have what used to be known as safe harbor, now is just eerily called the framework, like some bad, uh, you know, made for TV movie between the EU and the US, exactly because the internet is dominated by American companies. Uh, so much of the data is stored and processed in the US on US servers outside of the EU jurisdiction, uh, where all kinds of unsavory things can happen, according to your, from a European viewpoint, like espionage, like the NSA tapping into it and, and mining data of European citizens. So it's a collapse of the Safe Harbor Agreement, which came in the heels of the NSA scandal, in which we find out that the NSA was actually spying on European leaders, particularly in Germany. Uh, it was noteworthy that they had tapped into, uh, they had bugged uh, Merkel's uh, cell phone, among other things. And it was very clear after the NSA, particularly sort of around WikiLeaks and so on, that American companies could not give two shits about it, that they did not respect it. Because the fact is that in European political circles, nobody trusts Americans. So I think that in a way, what I see here is Europe kind of waking up, but the wake up process is extremely, extremely, excruciatingly slow. Martin, what, 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 what loose end of yours is there to tie up? Well, the main one I was looking at was Estonia, where actually uh, it turns out uh, Kalas, who has been denouncing the prime minister, who has been denouncing Russia, the Russian invasion, Russian activity, Russian commercial relations, etc. It turns out that her husband um, is still actually operating and has commercial, has investments in Russia. And not only that, she herself had invested uh, out of her own pocket into her husband fund. So she herself is actually operating in Russia. That has obviously propelled, uh, has pushed the opposition to ask for her resignation and clarifications and so on. I do wonder how much of this is just, you know, small town politics, opposition looking for any excuse to call for the resignation of the prime minister. At least what I was reading, what I've looked into so far, yeah, it doesn't look good. Uh, it was a little bit stupid to still have these Russia ties, but they weren't, they were indirect ties. Uh, it's a little bit unclear just how heavily involved either the prime minister or her husband were in Russia. Nonetheless, uh, in a moment, and particularly sensible, sensitive moment like this, uh, this is you have to just double and triple check uh, your connections to make sure you you don't come off appearing disingenuous. Nonetheless, it would be a good time for maybe some uh, uh, for her and her husband to skip off to Slovenia, where there's a current meeting this week of uh, Central and European uh, thought leaders, as they like to say in 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 the industry speak. You know, political leaders, officials, business people to talk about. You know, it, I, I, your classic kind of business conference to talk about the next steps, how Central and European countries can, you know, work better, better together. The bigger one that I'm looking at is actually Gabon, uh, which is the latest school in, uh, you know, Francophone Africa. Uh, I must say, um, just for just for uh, what is it, for transparency's sake, that I worked in the political, in the presidential campaign of Bruno Mubamba uh, against uh, Ali. Um, Ali uh, Bongo, who just was just deposed, uh, it turns out that Mubamba, uh, the guy I was working with, ended up becoming uh, 
a minister for, for Bongo. But the thing that is most interesting about this story, besides the fact that it sounds perhaps like just one more coup in, uh, in Francophone Africa, is that uh, Gabon is a major, major producer of oil. And as a matter of fact, it is the place where a lot of the to total extraction uh, happens. But it also has a lot to do also with, with Russian uh, interest in the region. There is an established presence, mainly apparently Wagner, the Wagner group, even now after his uh, boss's death, uh, which in theory has directly moved to belong or to depend on the Russian state. So it's no longer mercenary, you know, or an independent or a private army. I am curious to see how the death uh, of its founder and boss uh, is going to affect its operations and Russia's, you know, power projection in these regions if Wagner falls apart, um, if Wagner is not able to be successfully incorporated into the uh, official state security apparatus in Russia, if that any comes to pass, we could actually see a weakening of Russian influence in these parts of the world if they can't hold on to uh, their interests like they once could with the, uh, with the helping hand of the Wagner mercenary group. Maybe that's wishful thinking from a, a Western and specifically French point of view, but it will be interesting to see how that develops uh, in the time to come. You've been listening to Euroscopic with William Bluecroft and Martin Gack, written by us, produced by us, and edited by me. If you liked what you heard, like us, subscribe to us, leave us a comment, tell us what you think, and share us with a friend. You can find us at Substack, that's euroscopic.substack.com, and our podcast, wherever podcasts are heard. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll catch you next week. Music.